0: Okay, so today we're going to talk about the history of physical therapy um, and its humble origins way back when, Uh, especially now that newer information has come out. We have a guest with us named Brittany Phelps. Hello,
1: Um, I am Brittany Phelps.
0: (laughs) Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you you for doing this with us in advance in case we forget to say so. No
1: no problem.
0: Um, Why don't you... uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll start talking about the history if you want Yeah. at that point. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: me. Um, So, uh, I mean, my story is a simple one. I uh, grew up in Illinois, and then pretty much all my life was there. And then got to travel around a little bit uh, with, you know, physical therapy internships. I got to go to California and Arizona and, you know, Where else was I, Utah, and then I ended up coming down to Florida, so I'm still kind of new to the Florida area, but, um, you know, just kind of embracing the culture down here, finding stuff to do um, in the not snowy weather, which is very nice, but, yeah, I mean, I grew up dancing, and we can touch on that a little bit later as well. It's kind of what's brought me to where I am now is what inspires me for my future goals and where I want to be down the road. Mm-hmm. So, a little
2: bit. I'm curious, how did I miss the traveling internships? Yeah.
1: Well, I just, I, I've never been one to like to branch out, but somehow or another, I ended up going to all these different places, which but was I, cool.
2: I've heard several other therapists who got to go to.
1: Mm-hmm. different states
2: for their internships, I got to go to North Fort Myers,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of Before people Myers. a lot of people <laughs> wanted to stay in Wisconsin, so there mm-hmm. weren't very many internships available, so I just tried to embrace it. but going to I mean, going to Utah was awesome. Yeah. I mean I had, I had I'm not a big skier. I'm kind of scared of that. I didn't feel like I've hurt myself. But I did like a lot of hiking in the national parks, and I mean California. My aunt lives out there, but it was still really neat being right by the you know. Were the
2: there in the summertime or the? Next I was summertime? there
1: in November, so. Was going
2: to be cold and snowy?
1: In Ca- it was in San Diego, oh, 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 so okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. ah, not too much there. was like in Utah? No, oh Utah, it was um, springtime, so okay. it was wet.
0: But well, you, you say that you're not like adventurous or flighty or anything like that, but. From what I gather, you are a curious person, oh, and I think that's pretty uh, fitting in your personality.
1: Well, yeah, it's. I think it's been really neat as I like introspectively look at myself over the last, you know, five ten years. I have become so much more curious and willing to kind of go after that curiosity, which I think is what has even allowed me to be kind of in this position I am today so it's it's exciting it's scary i mean there's so much unknown but sometimes you just have to jump out there and and go at it and you won't know until you try so
0: oh i agree i think you've learned more i think Mm -hmm. you have a richer uh perspective because of that you know absolutely and so i think being eclectic is i think it's a great thing i don't think i think it's underappreciated as well yeah well, you gotta know, be a little bit of a weirdo too to go to all these new
1: places. So you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's.
0: And you are a weirdo. A I am weirdos. I,
1: I that I embrace fully. I am 100% a hundred percent a paint by number uh, listing weirdo, and I love it.
0: I oh, don't know. And you're like a type A. I oh yeah. Do the checklist. Oh.
1: Oh, I'm a huge lister. Oh my gosh. I get so much satisfaction from checking a box off. Like yeah. I I'm, I have a daily journal and every day I have I even put the hours I work and then I put everything I'm gonna do so at the end of the day I can check off.
0: Oh, and you're so you're detail oriented within the listing. Oh, list that you oh make? it's
1: it's so bad. Times times are set. It's yeah. a
0: lot of time like wasted in just
1: Oh, but it's so much fun. You get different colors, you have crayons, markers, oh. you know, colored pencils.
0: <laughs> you two are wondering why you invited me here now. <laughs> no, no, I think that's I think I think you're a great addition actually. Joe, you're not he's a weirdo for God's sakes, but he doesn't do lists, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, Maybe. no, I don't do lists.
2: I, I Think about doing it, and I probably should. Mm. But I, you know, I can't keep anything in order like that.
1: Join the dark side. <laughs> sounds <laughs> you
2: What
0: you said—it sounds very colorful.
1: It is very colorful. I mean, you <clears> can <throat> really make it your own. It's <laughs> I,
0: don't, I, don't, I mean, I can see you with highlighters, different colored mm-hmm. markers, and <laughs> I've got a whole <laughs> bin.
1: I've got a whole bin that's labeled.
0: You know. Oh my! You know, my wife is the same way. She she has, says the same thing, and all of her friends that have a similar personality. They get this certain amount of satisfaction just by crossing off something or checking something off their Mm -hmm. list. And I'm like, what kind of satisfaction are you getting because I'd rather just be, you know, lazy and not worry about writing it down. But
1: then you forget. You run the risk of forgetting.
0: Mm. Well, here's the downside to that. I don't think so. I think the people that don't write a list typically have a better memory. And the people that write a list, and I'm only saying this because of, you know, in comparison to my wife, anecdotal information, my wife has a terrible memory mm. and she can't navigate herself out of the paper sack. She has like no idea where to go. She doesn't even know what street we live on, to be honest with you. She gets <laughs> lost. She goes where her walk and gets lost. I'm going to pick her up, you know. If but if you've ever been in the car with Ray,
2: then I, I, I don't think you would let him talk so much about the direction navigation, his wife's sense of direction versus his own ability to navigate through. His own neighborhood, or let's say my neighborhood. It's not great. Oh, no, I think I'm a
0: pretty good navigator. navigator. Of course he does. Yeah, he thinks. I'm the one Um, that gave the, I not only, well, you provided the the, uh, address to get here, but I provided the... the, the directions, you know, street <laughs> by street. So I mean, anyway. I,
1: which, which, which I realized you had <laughs> sent me when I was almost oh. here. That's, that's why I had <laughs> never and, got the directions.
2: <laughs> and I did have to provide him with these same directions that, to, to get here numerous times oh. after he'd been here several times. Well, and all <laughs> times. he to ask me where, where do I turn again, even when I was in the car with him, is where. Oh, well, where's the turn? Where do I go? What, and I'm like, you've been there.
0: Well, I have to, it has to be a few more times. Now I can do it automatically. However, I think you're that sadistic prick that might just allow me to like go five miles past your house just to make fun of me. And the (laughs) idea that that. I don't get to the house, I I do, I think. Yeah, I I, I would
2: probably let you do that. Like, you know, one of these times if you still ask for direction, it will be like, um, hold on, I'll let you go right by it. Okay,
0: yeah, we're (laughs) we're coming up. (laughs) Right. Just keep going. Yeah, it's kind of like when we're on the water and you know, we're kayaking, like, we're going to go to that point. And I'm like, well, which point? There's five points up there. No, just go to that point. And then, you then you know, we start to, like, skew off, and you're like, well, where, where the hell are you going? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a useful teammate there. Okay, so uh, we might as well get started. We'll start with the topic at hand, and then I'd like to dive a little bit more into... Uh, your perspective and passion yeah. um, and, and the realm of physical therapy and what you want to apply. Absolutely. Um, I think you're a terrific therapist. I think you're going to be great. Thank you. Um, especially you know, with the experience that you're going to get. I think you're going to do wonderful things. I don't think you're going to be the complacent kind of therapist. I hope not. Tennessee. Yeah. I think you're going to help redefine our profession. Thank you. So looking into the information for the history of physical therapy, What would you find? What would you think?
1: For myself, um, I was, you know, I I know we had briefly, you know, talked about some of the origins, so I saw some of uh, the origins, how it had started back in the 1800s, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I don't want to overcomplicate a timeline, so I don't want to jump too much without us kind of filling in the gaps. No,
0: that's fine. So I'll start here. Like, we may have uh, uh, rewind the clock a little bit, right?
1: Technically
0: the uh the profession was named in the early 1800s okay the 19th century early 19th century 1800s for those that get confused about the 19th century (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but um that's the technical version however throughout history for god knows how long you know and i have a list here from uh, places throughout the world that uh that used bone setting, massage therapy, hydrotherapy, um, other forms of manipulations that they refer to as therapy. We're talking about the Balinese of Indonesia, the Longai line of Hawaii, Japan, China, Persia, Egypt, India, Central Asia with shamans, the uh, Sabadors in Mexico, Nepal, Russia, and Norway. We have these old carvings and these Ancient um, uh, statues and sculptures and and and, p- and pyrus, uh, pictures depicting people using physical medicine way back when. I mean, you're talking about at the advent of medicine. Okay, so obviously, physical therapy, which you know encompasses all those different things, um, uh, were were basically practiced by. The early practitioners of medicine, right? So, Homer wrote about manual therapy in the, as early as 1000 BC. Homer is the author of the Iliad and the um, uh, Odyssey, the famed hero Ulysses. I, I love Homer and those books. Did you read them? I <laughs> do this? <them>. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what is that, you,
1: Jeremy? Uh, I believe I read some of them. If you ask me anything about them, I could not tell you.
0: (laughs) I I, I don't know. I just love that type of literature. Um, But that was at a time Homer was thought to be making up mythical creatures, mythical uh, uh, people, mythical uh, places. And of course, in the uh, 19th century, 1800s, (laughs) uh, um, a gentleman without uh, archaeological education, who was curious about the city of Troy went and investigated and Turkey and, sure enough, found, discovered, the city of Troy was, in fact, real and not a myth, like many people thought for hundreds of years after the death of Homer. So, again, Homer might be telling the truth about Troy. He's also telling the truth about manual therapy as early as 1000 BC. <laughs> and then you fast forward a little bit. 460 BC, you have Hippocrates, you have Hector, you have some other Persian physician, uh, uh, I say physicians, but really just Persian medical practitioners who are using spinal manipulations to treat scoliosis and to relieve pain. Um, they're using hydrotherapy and the, uh, with exercise to help improve one's not just body, but their mind and also to treat, treat certain ailments, you know, and deformities. Okay. So then we fast forward to the eighteen hundreds. Woohoo. And that's where you take off. So you hey. to take off from the rest here from what you know.
1: Um, so I don't have the name written down. I know you do, the Lynn
0: Yeah, per Heinrich Lin.
1: There you go.
0: Sorry, or P. H. Lin.
1: With the initial coining of the term physiotherapy, um, and even I—I mean, looking through some of these articles, they show the pictures of these contraptions that they were using for some of these initial treatments. It's wild. It's so just medieval-looking some of the right. way that they that they would strap people into these things to, to do this their therapy. Um, so. I've been joking about that for a long time. Every time
2: we use traction and somebody says oh it's like the torture rack. I'm like it, it really is mm-hmm. and or we'll use the Graston instruments or any kind of instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. Now I, and I like to kind of make a production of it sometimes. I'll roll them up in the towel or roll them up in a case and I'll set it down in front of the patient and then unroll it out there. These <laughs> shiny metal blades are like what kind of manual tools are those? I'm like oh they're well they're they're instruments of, of health, so you know. And again, it's I see these things, these archaic uh, weapons, and I'm like, no, no, those are just those are medical. Like that, and they've been using those for medical
0: things for years. You got to tell the rest of that story. He doesn't just unroll the towel, <laughs> but he also puts his hair up and he has like a twisted <laughs> laugh. Where he's like, you tell me the truth. And it's like a villain from a Bond movie or something, and those things, you know, the Graston instruments, they look like they could be sharp, mm-hmm. and he doesn't comfort his patients as far as sharpness. You know, I tell them, hey, go ahead and touch this contour here so they know that it's it's a blunted instrument that can be used for mobilization. He's like, yeah, you know, I was just filing this in the back. There could be some blood. He mm-hmm. may have some splinters. And, yeah, exactly. You even say, hey, you might bruise. You might bleed from this. And then he also says, by the way, do you have an allergy to either like bees like or uh, what was it? What else you ask them? Coconut, coconut oil. Coconut, yeah. You're like your coconut oil, beeswax. And if they say no, I'm pretty sure he's throwing a little bit of coconut flake, you know, <laughs> inside the lotion there. See about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's right, yeah. So Per Heinrich Ling, also named as the father of Swedish gymnastics, mm-hmm. which was Renamed into medical gymnastics, um, he founded the um, what's, what does it say? the Royal Central Institute of Gymnastics in 1813. Using massage, manipulation, and exercise as treatment, he um, the, the individuals that were using this technique in medicine were uh, physicians. Some of them were physicians. Very few, though, not a whole lot. The majority of the profession for the most part, stayed away from this uh, uh, branch of medicine. But the, and I'm going to butcher the name, but the uh, Heil gymnast. I hope that's the correct right. way. But they were named the Heil gymnasts, and they were not necessarily schooled at first. They just went in as an apprenticeship, learned the tech, the techniques, and started working, and then through life experience, applied their mm-hmm. techniques. Um, eventually, though, in the latter part of the 1800s, 19th century. Okay, uh, they did develop educational programs within schools, uh, which you would argue is a fair ther- physical therapy school. And to educate each other, they also created other institutes to support themselves until the uh, medical profession started to specialize and things were being uh, uh, grasped, taken, you know, because of uh, economic um, opportunity that point. But uh, there is another word that was coined by uh, Per Heinrich Lien. Um, It was a Swedish word, which I'm going to butcher again, but um, gymnast, or let me just spell it, okay? Uh, It could be just juked gymnast, but it's S-J-U-K-G-Y-M-N-A-S-T. And that is the direct uh, translation to physical therapist. So the the original physical therapists were probably gym instructors or gymnastic instructors and in, uh, back in Sweden technically, although they were doing manipulation way before then too, as a part of it. Um, I, I wonder what kind of techniques were they actually using oh. they
2: first, before they even started the schools. What were they what was their their routine or their, what are
0: their techniques? It's amazing that you say that because the artwork which I wish we could apply here. Mm-hmm. If we can ever figure out the technology, we'll try to apply it. But um, they have people on tables. Mm-hmm. They have people cracking necks and backs. No, no different than a lot of techniques we use today. Actually, uh, they had them in sitting positions uh, on and prone on their stomach or and supine or on their side and and uh, um, just manipulating them, massaging them. And then those machines you talked about—they mm-hmm. were like a medieval total gym or pilates reformer, right? You know, or Boflex right?
1: Which is something I find interesting as well, as if this did start, you know, with the gymnasts in Sweden, you know, that's such an extreme level of movement to start the profession there and then how it's adapted to just the general population. But I mean, gymnasts are just unreal with right. the flexibility and the you know, the amount of motion and strength they require. So I think it's interesting how it's had to then adapt to a different population of people as well.
0: Well, I think, too, we have to be careful Mm -hmm. that we're thinking of gymnasts as gymnasts. But in the case of this, I I don't think they were referring to it as in gymnastics. They called it gymnastics because there were people working in a gym.
1: Oh, so, I get it. Variety, so more of an active population, people
0: They were doing a number of different things. They were doing passive movements, they were doing active movements, assisted active movements. Oh. They were doing a lot of different things that we do today. And different varieties. Some of them did it in water, some of them did it, you know, on a table, some of them did it uh, in a machine, mm. some of them they were running, they were walking, they were doing a whole bunch of variety of different a
2: plus so of different techniques. Rather than like in today's Terminology: We may not call these people gymnasts, as we would call a gymnast today—somebody doing gymnastic routines mm-hmm. and, and that sort of exercise—but more of more of a gym rat, or more of a just, uh, I say, health conscious, but just like she said, physically active. But somebody who's working out, whether it be running,
0: lifting, uh, training in some sort of way. No, you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. These are people exercising at this point in time. Medicine was not familiar with um, Small particles. They had no idea that atoms exist. They didn't know bacteria exist. They didn't know viruses ex- existed at the time They didn't think washing hands was important Surgery was not. Well, big. we know now that certainly is not needed. Exactly. Washing hands. Who does that? I yeah. know. I know. Just,
1: Just touch disgusting. your face all the time.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. lick your hands. Yeah, that's
1: fine. Um, Build your immune system. No,
0: seriously, wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> In the lieu of COVID, wash your hands. <laughs> the love yeah. of God. I mean, I, for years, have just applied the George Carlin technique. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar. One brush. Yeah. All all crevices. And he probably even added a crevice, I'm sure. Yeah. You know. You gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. Yeah. You if you crevice, don't remember this, have you ever heard this? No. From <laughs> George Carlin? Oh, oh It's one of the funniest bits. Oh, I'm a huge fan of George Carlin, as he is. And George Carlin had a joke where he used one brush to brush his, I think it's, um, armpits, asshole, and teeth. I think that's what it was. And he would say, he said that he would do that in that order. And so he, he would clean his armpits first, then his asshole, then his, then he would brush his teeth. (laughs) <laughs> the same front. <problem. laughs> or maybe he threw in the crotch somewhere. Too. I he can't believe really know. He didn't did include There was a four. Yeah. Arknit's asshole, crotch and teeth. Yep. Is that what it was? Yes. In that order. So, obviously, he cleaned his crotch after his asshole, which means he no, always... They, yeah, that, those two could have been interchanged. The, the joke was that the teeth would last. Well, if he did the asshole first. That means he's walking around with chronic stink dick. Yeah. <laughs> and also steak mouth but that's
2: uh, what gums for. the bigger point or the bigger the part of the joke that I was hitting, on was washing the hands (laughs) you know first of all starts out to set up this whole thing I've seen this played people have posted it on on uh, Facebook everything now with with the pandemic on uh, washing the hands and this whole hygiene and germs. Carlin's got a whole bit on germs. He, he goes yeah. off talking about where he was raised in New York. They swam in the Hudson River. This was not a clean waterway. It was dirty, filthy, mucky. And he built his immune system this way because he's, he was constantly exposed to this filth. Okay.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he, he, he goes, the joke goes, we uh, swam in shit, yeah. raw sewage. <laughs> Yeah. My immune system is equipped with the equivalent of an AK-47, AR-15s, tanks, mm-hmm. ballistic missiles, <laughs> nuclear weapons, and fighter jets or some shit like that Exactly. with naval carriers. It was quite hilarious. And he said, um, that's why when he drops a burger on the floor in the middle of Calcutta uh, during a soccer riot. The poor section. and The poor section. <laughs> He can eat it and not get sick. <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of truth to that as far as medicine is concerned. Um <laughs> but the point kiddos, you know, uh, eat shit off the floor and don't worry about washing your hands. We're responsible PTs, I think, right? Yeah. We're gonna talk about, we're talking about immunity all this year, so oh, there
1: you go. It fits
0: right in. It does, it does it and <laughs> increase our business a little bit too, if you're not washing your hands. <laughs> Well, brushing their teeth after they do asshole crotch and armpit, yeah. Okay, so let's we get back us. to the uh, Royal Central Institute of Gymnastics, which was actually a very influential institute in uh, the Nether- in Sweden, the Netherlands, all through Europe, actually. Physicians who opened up clinics to do physical therapy actually had to get um, approved authority from this institute.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they used they notably used German military training techniques and, interestingly enough, Chinese manual practices. So I wonder if they were doing Graston or ASTEM or any type of like Gu or whatever techniques they used back then. Also, we have to mention that at that point in time, before then, in China, Kung Fu and uh, Tai Chi and many other different movement practices were being used as treatments as well and for daily health practice. But these guy, this guy, along with some other individuals, got together and basically, they're cited as the first physical therapists or the beginners, the, the fathers of physical therapy. They established a scientific basis for education and clinical methods uh, through tracking patient outcomes. So they were tracking patient outcomes and comparing it to their treatment methods in hopes to determine what the better methods of care was. And that's really interesting.
2: When was the beginning of the first
0: outcomes? When do we have the first evidence of outcomes? I didn't find a date for that but I mean it must have been in between 1813 and somewhere after like that. Do we know how effective or what kind of outcomes they were having? Uh, The
1: stuff I read and this is jumping forward a little bit to more mm -hmm, of the polio mm -hmm. World War One time era but they were talking about how people undergoing physiotherapy, physical therapy, were improving and rehabbing much faster, which is why it began to really take off and start to grow, because it was, you the soldiers were recovering, wound healing, and, and, you know, just range of motion and overall strength, so. You're you're absolutely right.
0: Amputees Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But at the time, remember, surgery was, Oh, you got shot in the leg. Let's cut your leg off. Okay, um, you're sick. Well, we're gonna treat you with you know some mercury and and or, or something else. It wasn't it wasn't truly scientific in what it is today. And at that time, physical therapy was showing to be quite beneficial. People were doing quite well with it, and so physicians tried to like get yeah. involved. And this is I wanted to mention this. The uh, graduates of this institute were licensed by Sweden's National Board of Health as early as 1887. Mm. Uh, So you're talking about years and years before osteopathy was created and before chiropractic was created and the discovery or the talk of small particles such as bacteria that could get you sick. Um, The other thing too is that the physicians, some physicians or notable historical physicians that graduated from this program was... Uh, Jonas Heinrich Kellgren, who was the father in law, um, and heavy influencer to Edgar Syriax Senior, the father of James Syriax. You remember James Syriax? Yeah. Yeah. With all
1: the joints and
0: that's right. the father of, of manual medicine, yeah. right. exactly. Well that was a that mm-hmm. was a joint. If you didn't get that, that was okay. No, but yeah. No, and and so they were influenced by the RCIG. I thought that was really interesting. And that is another reason why perhaps James Syriax was so heavily involved in rehabilitation and manipulative medicine way back then as a founding father. That's cool. I I thought so, too. I thought it was pretty neat. Um, All right, do you have anything else around that time period, too?
1: I did not delve as deep into the... 1800s as, as um, you did?
0: Well, there was something else that I wanted to talk about. Um, there were uh, a lot of founding Fathers in manual medicine. I don't need to go too far in manual medicine, but I did want to share, uh, there was something else that I wanted to implicate back in the uh, late 1800s. Um, let's see if I can't find it here. I talked about James Syriax uh, Let's see here. Okay, so in in, uh, 1894, four nurses formed the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, Lucy Robinson, Rosalind Padgett, Elizabeth Manley, and Margaret Palmer, Uh, and then which led to, they found that in 1894 um, in the United Kingdom to protect and sustain practices held by soldiers uh, after recovering from uh, injury. It, later, it was initially formed as a Chartered Society of Massage and Medical Gymnastics in 1920, and then later became the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in 1944. And and so I, I bring all that up because it, it's really interesting how therapy kind of like uh, is influenced by all these different sects or realms of um. so Mary McMillan, which most people think of physical therapy in the United States, they think of well, it was founded by a majority of women, Mary McMillan, who was the first Reconstruction Aid, which was what termed, was turned for women who were participating as physical therapists and during the polio epidemic and, and World mm-hmm. War II. Which later she founded um, an organization that would become APTA in the nineteen forties. Uh, but she too was heavily influenced by the RCIG. And she wrote about the RCIG, the Royal Center um, Institute, the Royal Central Institute of Gymnastics. So she too was influenced by the same institute that James Syriax was also um, influenced by. Yeah. So, and there's more to go about it in the Netherlands. They go in greater detail as far as uh, the information I have. I don't want to dive into that too much here. But we went to Mary McMillan. Uh, let's see here. So, in 1913, the University of Otago in New Zealand, and in 1914, Reed College in Portland, Oregon established uh, the first schools of physical therapy, officially. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and in 1917-18, World War I uh, was, was rampant, and physical therapy was needed more than ever, and that's when you had a bunch of Reconstruction aid programs that developed in the United States. And that was the advent of physical therapy. So we see physical therapy as a whole being created in you know northern Europe and Scandinavia and Netherlands and whatnot and even though it's been utilized throughout the whole world way before then officially in Europe and then we see it come over to the United States during World War One. and even though we had a modest beginning in physical therapy with uh with Mary McMillan and some other reconstruction aid programs uh, and, and individuals Physical therapy is old.
1: It's been around
0: for as long as traditional medicine's been around, and it's been around much longer than chiropractics and osteopathy. So, however, I don't think it gets that credit, you know. And I don't think people are taught that necessarily in school. No, I,
1: I know. I was never taught to the depths of you know what we've talked about today. Um, A lot of it starts with the polio. You know, right? That
2: was the first that I'd known
0: or heard was the the World War and you know just the recovery of the soldiers. Right. Yeah, because they're telling you this is what American physical therapy began. We don't tend to think of it from a global perspective, which I wish we would.
1: With because I think there's so much that you gain from the other countries' perspectives, and you know. the, the conferences that were held to allow therapists and aides to learn from each other and, and learn from the medical profession as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, is it jumping too far forward to go to the 1950s? No, go ahead. I
0: think that we've established that Mary McMillan was influenced by the RCIG. Uh, you have James Syriax that also influenced by the mm-hmm. RCIG that was teaching physical therapy reconstruction aides manual medicine at that point, using exercise and other modalities. Electrotherapy was really big at the end of the 1800s, and so physical therapists were using that as well to help, not necessarily just physicians, mostly physical therapists were using it to help stimulate musculature and to help with neuromuscular reeducation. That sounds like a modern word, but that word has actually been around for a couple hundred years. So they were using it then to help with hypertrophy, muscular development, uh, range of motion, all that kind of
1: stuff. Well, and when when was it that the Bobaths kind of came in with PNF, was that?
0: Yeah, I want to say that was around the 40s and 50s. 40s,
1: okay. Exactly. Then, well, that PNF stuff started to take away, which I, you know, it's, it's you, you so quickly can forget how some of these techniques have been in place for so long that we still use so right, you know, regularly, right. every day, um, which I thought was cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was... Doing some research and found that the first world conference was held in England in 1953, I believe, Um, and it was physicians and the therapists that attended, which I thought was pretty cool. So you're able to really get a more broad view of what's going on, whether the medical, you know, the physicians were engaged in it or not. They were still aware and kind of knew what was going on. And these people, I watched this video and they literally would get up on stage and have an entire treatment session. I mean, they would do groups of 10, 15 children up there jumping around, doing bunny hops, doing elephant trunk swings, doing all this stuff for their rehab. And then they'd get a group of 15 men up there that were, you know, strengthening their trunk and their core. And they were doing, you know, different arm patterns and standing. It was very, it's such a different type of perspective that they had for their conferences back then to how we do things now. You know, it's so much more, let's all sit here, let's talk about something. And there it was like an auditorium. It was like a whole production that they had. They were up on a stage and it was just very interesting to see that. But to think that they went from 12 countries to kind of where we are now, it's just so cool to see that kind of, that start off. At that a lot point. of our
2: continuing education, I feel like we still use a version of that first model where mm-hmm. we get to, where we get up, we, we practice, we do these different moves. Uh, we may not have a whole group of people on stage showing us or going through it to show us. You know, we have one or two people mm-hmm. kind of to talk about it, and then we all get up and practice. Um, but I, you know, struck I. I recall seeing actually Ray even use a, a the bunny hop, having a person bunny hop in the clinic just a, just a month or two ago. He's, yeah. He had this guy hopping, 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 that's hopping. hopping. Um, <laughs> so I mean, the, the, that's why I asked earlier about what kind of techniques the gymnasts were using back then, way back then when they were starting out. As opposed to what we're doing now today, mm-hmm. I was curious about the effectiveness of what they did. I assume, or it seems like, they probably did a more global movement approach to to their to their work. And we really, or we we really emphasize a lot of that now. Mm-hmm. Um, These some of us try to do just a more full body, more full range of motion from head to toe. To incorporate as much muscle across the body as we can, as much activation, stabilization, uh, stabilization as we can. The two words together. You put those two words together, and it's like, phew, <laughs> get it. Um, and then you should see me try to type those two words. Always miss misspelt. Uh, miss yeah. Yeah. yeah, Um But yeah, I, 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 that's what I, that's what I was what I was thinking about earlier about the about what they did and how effective it was versus what we do now and how much of it we might use from back from from, your, from their models versus new train of thoughts versus newer
0: reverting back to older train of thoughts. So yeah, let, let's answer that. Um, I think we're still using a lot of those techniques mm-hmm. to this day. There's a lot of paradigms, and a lot of people are very dogmatic about what school of thought they come from. So they don't let go of those paradigms, no matter how effective they may be or ineffective they may be. It's a dogma that we subscribe to. Um, Mary, Mary McMillan, the mother of physical therapy in America, she, I just wanted to be precise here, in 21, 1921, she founded uh, America's American Women's Physical Therapy Association, which later became the APTA in the 40s. But to answer your question, back then, when you had these highly gymnasts or uh, these medical gymna- uh, gymnast, gymnastic physical educators, Uh, At the time, it was was thought that um, if you got sick, you needed bed rest. If you had heart disease, you had to have bed rest, okay? What happened was, for whatever reason, manual medicine was still being used uh, to treat many different things. But there was a split in allopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine. And the physicians really went more towards allopathic medicine. And one of the things I read last night was that physicians felt, well, you know, being homeopathic, doing manipulations, and participating in exercise is very labor-intensive. And you get paid for it, but it's more labor-intensive than, uh, than, than what you're getting paid. However... I, I ask you, um, I don't mean to interrupt, but can you explain to me and the audience the difference between homeopathic and allopathic? Yeah, homeopathic would be your bone setters. It would be the ones that are interested in using nutritional concepts... Uh, manipulations, massage, things that necessarily are considered to be more holistic in nature. Concepts that may be uh, not fully proven, uh, although vetted, some of them may not be vetted, but uh, for the most part they're, uh, they come from an institute of manual medicine and nutritional practices. Whereas allopathic medicine utilizes a, a, a bit more of a scientific approach However, they're looking more forward towards like pharmaceutical care, um, prescriptions, uh, recommendations of what to do and not to do. Although both of them provide that, but this is a little bit more stringent in the fact that um, if you had pneumonia, you certainly do not exercise; you lay in bed. If you have a broken bone, you have to cast it. Whereas a bone setter might say, "Oh, let's let's move it a bit." Okay. Right. So, now, to be correct, to, to, to give you the whole picture, when Hippocrates came along and all these people that we talked about up until the late 1800s, medicine as a whole was the same. Medicine as a whole was practiced by pretty much everybody. Okay, so the exercise, what's wrong? I was just watching the reflection on the wall that the dog saw.
2: Oh, so he's going to, if he, that's the pen. Yeah, oh, the I pen see. keeps reflecting to the wall, so he's going to go crazy if that keeps moving.
0: Okay. <laughs> so at the time, it was thought that in medicine, if you were sick, you don't do certain things. And then you had these people who started, like, moving and say, no, 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 physical activity is not just important for, like, overcoming an infection and helping with breathing. It's also very important for the mind. And some physicians were in tune with that, and, but not a lot. And other people who were your experiential practitioners, because there wasn't a, a specific education for that. Okay, they kind of they were like physicians, but they were not schooled in, in medicine. Uh, nor were they seen as physicians. The highly the gymnast. Um, they basically went down this track, and it, people were getting better. People were doing quite well as Brittany alluded to earlier, and some physicians saw this as, this is modern advancement. Now, as always, when you see improvement, you see there's a changing of the guard, There's uh, you need to adapt to the times, and most people, especially the majority of any profession, they tend to hold back, they tend to say, mm, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable with change, and they don't change, and they don't update themselves, whereas other physicians do. And those physicians that that got more involved with these hygienists and learned from them and utilized them didn't do the work. They referred their patients to them to be treated. This is really, really interesting. They then called themselves hygienists, all right? And in the late 1800s, there was economic depressions across the world, all right? And what happened was you had people who were – you had competition – and the physicians, for the most part, did not were not doing that well financially. And they looked at the their competition, the higher as being a threat to the profession from an economic standpoint. So they appealed to the government to basically block them from seeing patients and allowing physicians to see them. And what's really, really interesting in some of the literature that I found was that there was a, a group of men in the Netherlands who were hylogenists, They formed uh, a group. Let's see a group
1: of men that formed a group, huh?
0: Of men. <laughs> Just to no, be women. Clear. <laughs> no women? No women. No no, women. no no women allowed. They always make it worse.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. To have that problem.
0: When you find them. They uh, it was a weird name. It was of course it's a Swedish or um, German name. You sure you're going to be able to pronounce it? <laughs> oh. I'm going to purposely butcher it for you. Um, where is it? They, they formed the Society for Practicing Highland Gymnastics in the Netherlands, uh, led by a gentleman named um, E. Meekman. And basically, they originally met, I think, in a bar or a hotel or something like that, and they formed this group. To permit them to do work, they, the other thing too is we have to be clear is that there was also a group of people called bunglers who were pretending to be gymnasts or physicians, but had no education, no formal training. They weren't even; they were very, off, they were just terrible practitioners, and they were lying, and they were per, they they were doing incompetent work and hurting people. There's a small percentage of people, but they were hurting people, and so. The hyalogymnists, the physicians who work together to treat these patients, were concerned about it. So they formed their groups. Now, physicians are trying to take power of this branch of medicine because it's lucrative. And at that point in time, you didn't have a ton of pharmaceutical care and, you didn't, and surgery wasn't big. So they saw an advantage to take it. So they started to politically gain support to take that from hygienists. And then you have this group of men who form the uh, Society for Practicing Hyalogymnists in the Netherlands to protect the rights of hygienists, and they wanted to work with physicians. This is where it gets really interesting. To provide political advantage or to prevent political sabotage, what these men decided to do was to partner with physicians uh, and allowing them to refer patients to them for care. So in other words, they said, no, 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 you're right. Let the patient go see the physician first. And if the physician thinks that they're appropriate for care, then they can refer that patient to us. And that's when they started referring, and then later became a prescription, which is now another referral process again because we are independent autonomous practitioners. But they did that not because they were incompetent, not because the physicians do what they're doing. The physicians were not really doing a lot of this because they wanted to maintain uh, political... um, Agreement with the physicians and not be completely shut out. All right, and at that time too They were being educated and all these different different formal exercise paradigms and manipulative paradigms and and modalities as well So I thought that was intriguing, but the exercise that you talked about earlier Exercise was not seen a value and people started messing around and they started using Utilizing exercise with machines that pretty talked about with lifting weights Benjamin Franklin is credited with inventing the dumbbell.
1: Huh. I don't think I knew that.
0: Yeah. And you're talking about early 1800s. He advocated for, if you have a fever, drink very cold water to break it. And he advocated, and he invented the dumbbell and used dumbbells for resistance training.
1: Huh.
0: Isn't that funny? That's pretty cool. Isn't that cool? There's a ton of innovation and exercise from that point. I mean, you have Pilates in the the early 1900s, and uh, you have... A ton of different I mean you had bodybuilders back in the late eighteen hundreds. Remember remember those cartoons with the you know the chest is sticking up kind of <laughs> so people were doing resistance training, they're doing aerobic work, they're doing aquatic therapy, they're doing massage, they're doing spinal manipulations and joint manipulations, active range of motion, passive range of motion, assisted range of motion, and electrotherapy. I don't know about ultrasound, but they were doing electrotherapy back then too. So I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: I know people have been exercising for for almost forever, uh, all the way back to ancient Greece. And I wish that I would have looked back and seen what exactly they did for their exercise. I mean, they were a very, I want to say, health-conscious group of people. Um, They believed very strongly in taking care of their bodies, both physically as well as nutritiously. Um, We've talked about diets from different parts of the world, as well as diets for different seasons. They used a diet, they, they changed their diet with the season they, um, based on, I believe, two things. One, what was available in each season. Right. And then two, what how the food would affect their bodies in the cold weather, hot weather, uh, or, or just the, the environment that they were going through at that time. Um, but I, I wish I, like I said, I wish I could remember what they did for exercises. But I know that they, they, they enjoyed exercising naked. Which yeah. um well, and who
0: does do <laughs> <laughs> I don't <laughs> it's uncomfortable.
2: I mean
1: not that I've tried, but like in
2: ancient, Greece. <laughs> in ancient Greece everybody was almost everybody I think was was I shouldn't say everybody because that, that excludes the people that obviously there's always people that don't that aren't included in the everybody, but
0: um like the fat people. Nobody said, Hey, well, you know what you should do? You should exercise naked. I think a lot of, a lot of the people were proud of their bodies. they they
2: wanted to they wanted to be seen and this might be again an unfair judgment but I mean they were proud it was something that they took pride in they took care in and it was seen to be it was actually almost law or almost mandatory that you took care of yourself by doing exercise um, and not letting yourself get to a point where you would be more vulnerable for illness, more vulnerable for sickness that might have something to do with the fact that well if you get sick and or incapacitated or let yourself go then somebody else is going to have to take care of you hmm. when you had, and we know that you can take care of
0: yourself by following this these regiments. Um, well that makes sense especially when you're talking about the spartan culture because their government was a militarized government and you fought, everybody fought mm-hmm. and so if you were not healthy and you did not stay and have physical stamina or physical ability, how are you going to serve the state at times right. of war? It was a warring country. Now, so I mean, everybody wasn't.
2: did have to do at least some time in the military, right? Uh, then, for Sparta? Yeah. yeah. I
0: mean, well, they took the boys. All the boys, yeah. At a young age, and they trained them all the way up until their death in the military or retirement. So, But they're talking about Sparta not uh, versus Athens. But back then, life was hard. They're physically active. They did train. They did really care about the nutritional uh, perspective, as well as uh, what they believed in as far as their gods are concerned. Another thing that uh, is interesting is that the reason why David, the statue of David, had a little penis was because the Greeks and the Romans thought that a little penis was more representative of God. It was classy. It was classy. Stay so
1: classy, a, San Diego.
0: Right. A, yeah, stay classy. <laughs> <laughs> but if you had a big penis, they're pretty I'm pretty sure they're like, Yeah, don't get naked. You don't want to take away from the rest of the physique, right? Yeah. No, you you they valued the guys with the small penises. Yeah. I think. I'm pretty sure that's true. No comment. Uh, that's why that's, <laughs> but that's why the statue of David, he's got a, you know amazing yeah. physique and he's got this deep little, little thing, you know? Yeah. Maybe he was just cold. It could yeah. Or he could be a, a shower not a grower. Right, you know, or a grower, not a shower. Oh, yeah, maybe I, is, I is that the way it goes. I, I think I, I think wouldn't so. know, but okay, I'm thinking, you know, okay, maybe it's the other way around. He's a grower and not a shower. Okay,
2: he's
0: not gonna, you know, well, he's inefficient, really right? If it's slapping I'm, around, when he's running, you know, to outrun other people, it's inefficient, and so you want that thing to tuck up into your body so you can, you know, have less drag, be more aerodynamic. And then when you're messing around with your wife, surprise. Okay, not funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but that's the history of physical therapy, and we, we fast forward to like today.
1: From yeah. that to, yeah, uh, now to <laughs> Yeah,
0: we talk about sex and, and physical therapy all the time. <laughs> and when you exercise and sex, you have to be naked. So there you go. That that proves your point. That Thank you. There you go. I just think it's better for you. You're using all those stabilizing muscles when you're naked anyway. You're not bracing yourself. Think about that.
1: I'll think about it.
0: No, you think about it. (laughs) So, um, okay, so we fast forward. We got past Mary McMillan, uh, who who helped create or created the APTA. Uh, Then we go to the BOBAS, which introduced neuromuscular facilitation, and you have all these different founding fathers of manual therapy, within osteopathic medicine, within chiropractics, within physical therapy that just accelerated where we are. And we have the World Congress, we have the uh, International Federation that was created in the 70s, and now we have the advent of the doctoral programs in physical therapy Mm -hmm. as well as other specializations within physical therapy that's only pushing for a rigorous and particular specialties that will enhance patient care.
1: Do you know when all those specialties kind of started to evolve and started to get...
0: In physical therapy? Yeah,
1: because that's not something I'm familiar with is when that all began being able to specialize and go delve into whether it's geriatrics or you know sports medicine or yeah. wound care. Well,
0: Specialties started in the early 19, 1900s, the uh, 20th century for those kids. Uh, in the late 1800s, the uh, late 19th century, uh, specialization started to occur, especially among physicians, and that was the uh, that's where orthopedics came from. They sprung up, and they really tried to jump on this concept of physical therapy mm-hmm. and be the experts. And that's part of the reason why there was some conflict. There was a at the end of the at the beginning of the 1900s, there's a lot of conflict between. the 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 initial physical therapists and physicians as far as controlling that branch of medicine and who's allowed to see the patient and get permission to work with the patient or not and then what you see is as physical therapy grows and spreads across the world and develops in america is that the specializations always there but really kind of pretty much increase over the span of the last 30 years 34 years of orthopedics and pediatrics but for the most part you know, polio in World War II. Mm-hmm. Reconstruction aids, uh, rehabilitation aids, they were working on soldiers and children with deformities and polio survivors for the mm-hmm. majority. And there's other people, you have PNF that came along in the at around that time, I, I believe that was like the 20s through the uh, 50s out in west uh, the western portion of the United States where they did a lot of work with uh, people that just weren't getting any better people that had strokes, people that had neurological complications, children with deformities, and so, and that was always manual, always. Right. Um, and then, and so, they specialized back then, and, uh, and and then we merged, and then we started to branch off again. But we're branching off in a more coordinated fashion.
1: Right.
0: So, I'm happy where we are. Mm-hmm. I think we're doing great as a profession, and I would just Love to see more competent growth. And let's own this shit. Let's own our history. Let's own ourselves. And let's just take it further.
1: Yeah. I think the more you know about, like, our history and where it all started, it's inspiring to want... You know, they start with not having the research methods that we have now. I mean, the data collection and all that stuff. I mean, look at what they did. And they made all these improvements. And they were just kind of, like, having people do generalized exercise. I mean, now it's... It's cool to not forget about that, but use that as inspiration to keep pushing forward, to keep on improving when we have all this technology and ability to improve things
0: now. Right, I think it's cool. Yeah. I think I think as another point to go back to is that those individuals that founded this, that put it forward, that really put their, their name, they stamped their name and history on this profession, were no different than many of us in this profession. Mm-hmm. They were passionate, they were determined, competent and they too were not looking just to work with people they were looking at a scientific process to determine what techniques what methods have the best outcomes Mm -hmm. i think that's beautiful they're looking oh let's not just do this no why is that helping and they collaborated together Mm -hmm. to improve
1: and be efficient and just you know Billy-daddle through someone's recovery, but how are you going to get them better the fastest? What's going to facilitate that?
0: And they didn't have to do that, yeah. but they had the personality that many of us have mm-hmm. to do that and they push it for us. And so in essence today, we're just standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's, I think like you said, it's awe-inspiring mm-hmm. and fucking cool to think that man, like those people, they were kick-ass and I'm so glad that there are founding fathers and mothers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's awesome. It's very cool. Okay. Uh, so anyway, gives let's talk about you a little bit. Now, we talked about the history. Mm-hmm. You talked about, you know, your history, where you traveled around, did some PT, you're still trying to I know we've talked a little bit, you're yeah. still trying to find where you where you yeah. wanna be, where your place is. And uh, talk about your passion, talk about what you wanna do in your yeah. career and where you wanna go. Oh,
1: this is the fun stuff. So yeah. I um I, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up dancing. I mean, I ever I started when I was three years old, and I went all the way through college and graduate school, all that good stuff. I mean, I mean, I mean, that was my life growing up. I would, all the way through middle school and high school, I would spend at least 30 hours a week at the dance studio. You know, it's every day after school. You do your homework there. You go there on the weekends. You perform on the weekends. Um, that was like my family, you know, so it's just, it's like a lifestyle. And I went to therapy a few times for, you know, back problems and stuff like that with dance. And I just, I, I really enjoyed.
0: What kind of dancing? Were you like a crunker? <laughs> oh, I'm you? not that cool, remember?
1: I'm weird. I don't type that. I, 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 so you did the robot. I, exactly. Okay. No, I, I've done everything but ballroom and um, Irish. I've never dabbled in Irish, but I've done, you know, ballet, point. I really like the slower stuff, the lyrical, contemporary, modern. I've done jazz, hip-hop, um, you know, more of the character, older school kind of stuff. So I've done a little bit of... Everything tap. You know, it's all really it's it's very interesting, it's really enjoyable. And now that I'm finding that I really enjoy being in more of an outpatient setting for physical therapy, you know, the realm of possibilities of working with dancers and, and all of that and one of my friends and I in school for our one of our projects did a project on the biomechanics of point versus ballet and looking at the different joints and you know, your ankle, knees and hips and just the increased torque that's required to produce these movements. I mean, it's incredible the end ranges of motion that these people have to do. You're not just dealing with your average Joe Schmoe who comes in with a problem. I mean, they have to be able to get up on their toes. and need to be able to hyperextend and wing out their feet and produce different movements that a lot of people can't do. And it's stabilizing those movements. It's just so incredible. So, you know, that's really what drives me to want to be better and to want to keep progressing to maybe – start to work with populations like that and,
0: you no, know. No, Let me ask you this. Yes. What you're describing is basically gravity-defining <laughs> uh, elements, attributes of limitless potential mm-hmm. from the human body. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, there is no limitations, except for the limitations we place on ourselves. Yeah. Joe and I have talked about that many times. We expect too little from people. We tell people over and over and over again to, as a profession, from a conservative perspective, don't expect so much, don't don't try so hard, do little, don't work as hard. Except for when it comes to Joe and I, all right. he's a ball buster, I don't know if you can tell. But um, all the patients say that, Joe. Uh, I do. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to... Figure out what you're saying there, because we. we you're, you're a Greek. You're a Greek ball buster. Apparently, you're telling them to get naked, do some exercises. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. But my question is, uh, for you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: with that perspective, with what you saw and what you've been influenced by, and what you probably have done yourself, mm-hmm. how would you? How do you apply that into your care today, and as a physical therapist?
1: Um, I think it makes me appreciate movement more, you know, there's just, and, and finding something you enjoy doing because there's so many times we're like exercise, exercise, but there's a lot of people that don't just like to exercise. You know, for me, it was really hard to leave school where I had a group that I danced with multiple times a week and not have that outlet anymore. It was really, really hard. And so it's helping people find something and some sort of activity that they can be active in. To just, for, again, that generalized exercise to help with so many of these problems, especially since the pandemic, where people are sitting at home, they're not moving. And we're seeing all these people like, oh, over the past nine months, I've gotten worse. You know, it's people are just inactive. So I think since I've had, and I understand having such a passion for something active, so I would love to just help people find something, too, of you don't have to go to the gym and exercise. You can get in the water. You can you know, golf. You can play tennis. You can go dancing with your, you know, significant other. You know, do something that just gets you. You know, bike riding, kayaking. There's It's there's so many options. Go just walk around at the park. You know, go
0: go so, play. Yeah, a kid play. Yeah, have fun.
1: But it's it's just it's, yeah. it's, it's 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 as simple as that. You just have to find something that inspires someone to want to be active because not everyone is built the same. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, you guys need to go dance. It's so much fun. You you know, you might not get as much. Well, enough. I look
0: great in a, in a unitard anyway.
1: A so, unitard,
0: a nice leotard type. There, it's a unitard. A no, oh, leotard. <laughs> oh, yeah, I look great <laughs> as a unitard.
2: <laughs>
0: Don't worry, you, you fit any kind of tights. Oh, thank you very much. Um, you know, as a group and a lone lone wolf group, we're doing great. Uh, did you get that reference? Um, you're you're referencing Hangover. I, I'm
2: trying to but I probably Trying to. I, I, I get where the reference comes from. I don't understand <laughs> what you mean. Okay. Okay. Because I thought um, we both were targets together.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. But apparently not. No. I'm the only target. Yeah, but uh, it's you the target. You, I'm the, you I'm you the, the, the ugly, target. ugly friend. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. the ugly friend in this group and I hang out with you because you make me look better. Right? Or I make you look better. because you so ugly. Yeah. Right. That <laughs> makes no I sense. sense.
1: That's, that sucks. That's okay. Next
0: time. Oh, I'm the ugly friend. At least I'm the smart one, right? Yes. i give me that. You okay. can be the smart one. So, no, 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 but you're right. Joe and I have talked about this over and over and over and over and over again, and we bash our head into a wall because as a profession, we tell people, and, and historically we've told people, do these exercises, you're going to have to do them every day for the rest of your life. That's, that in itself is retarded because you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't be able to get back to a nice, productive, and enjoyable life. It's right? not realistic
1: either. I mean, it's not. It's
0: yeah. not practical. I know. That's I mean, give me a break. And not only that, what if they don't enjoy the activity anyway? Mm -hmm. So, like, Joe and I talked about before and before and before. And we were talking about exercise, the history of physical uh, exercise. It's not exercise per se. That's a supplement to lifestyle. That's a supplement to physical activity. You have to find something that that permits you to be physically active while maintaining your health. So it doesn't matter if you're kayaking, Mm -hmm. fishing, or dancing, mm-hmm. but if you sit on the butt, on your butt, on the couch, and you and you relegate yourself to sedentary behavior, you know what that's—you know what's going to happen to you. Yeah. And your body will adapt. It will evolve. You just—you just may not like it.
1: Right. Well, and then it's—you know—you get into a whole another realm of mental health. And I mean, for the people that do sit sure. on the couch all day, I mean, just overcoming those barriers and. And of you know difficulty of I just don't want to do anything, not because I don't want a better lifestyle, but because I just physically cannot produce the you know the internal you know desire to want to get up and do something. So and it's it's, uh, it's, it's an
0: inactivity, sedentary yeah. lifestyles. They propagate
1: absolutely inactivity
0: and and sedentary lifestyles. So you have to find something you enjoy, mm-hmm. something that is fun. And something you want to do on a frequent and consistent basis. It doesn't have to be going to the gym yeah. and swinging Benjamin Franklin dumbbells around. <laughs> I think about him like you've seen those Trump pictures. Trump's a, you know a tall, fat guy with like orange skin. He's a walking caricature. He is a walking caricature. <laughs> yeah. But I really yeah. love the fact that like his supporters, and I, it's nothing against his supporters, but they have pictures of him. Jacked. Like, like, when did he ever look like that? Even when he was young, he never looked like that, right? And so, when I think of Benjamin Franklin, I almost think of him in that same sense. You know, he's the a jacked, short, right? stubby guy. <laughs> yeah, he's jacked. Bald head, still the same haircut. Bald with the hair, you know, the mullet, the, the bifocals on. And he's just like, yeah, I a thing of carrot juice this morning. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Cold carrot juice to break the fever, you know, as he's holding a kite with the key on it. that's a good image that's a good well you know you know i I think you can do
1: it so i don't know if that answered your question or not but i think just finding i mean for for the population i'm working with right now that's kind of how i I take my passion and i'm trying to pay it forward to say hey this isn't because i know i would want to go lift weights every single day that's boring i
0: agree i think it's great too to try to get some of these 80 year old chicks to Get on point. They can barely do a calf raise as it is. If you can get them to get on point, they're going to be great.
1: Oh my you know? gosh! Yeah, I doubt that. They
0: can ditch the walker at that point. right? Oh
1: yeah, just walk around on their toes all day.
0: But I mean, who's to say that they can't do that? Oh yeah. Who's to say? Well, the
1: that thing yeah, they yeah,
0: they can, they can, progress. they can build themselves up to that, right? If they care, if they wanted to,
1: it'd if be interesting because I just I feel like bony changes and with osteoporotic women, I would worry about. Yeah, but it's at the same time, I guess it'd be good to improve their overall yeah. bone density. You yes. talk about
2: bony changes and uh, structural changes. A lot of these people have spent have been developing their current structure for eighty years. Yeah, right. Um, but that's not to
0: say that they can't continue to adapt.
1: Oh, but the they could
0: direction. in the opposite. It's just you just got to be progressive and you have got to be. Do it right. That's all.
1: Because no, they, I mean, they put girls on point at age.
0: Yeah, seven. Well forget about them being a point. They can't even pick their heels up I, on both legs. Yeah.
2: Now just so I am clear, you're talking on point like on the tip
0: of the toes.
1: Oh, That's um, always been my but you may be saying on the ball of your foot. Is that well, your on point?
0: No, I was I was literally being facetious. Oh. but as a break dancer, on point was, you know, on my finger. Okay. One finger? One <laughs> finger. Pinky. As I spun around. Okay. On the pinky finger. On the pinky exactly. finger.
2: We can, we can attach some links to your breakdancing days. Right? We have some videos of Ray
0: on point. I'm sure we can find okay. some, some videos of a guy that looks like me <laughs> that I would like to have dressed like. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I'm sure we can find something like that. I will say, back in high uh, in
2: school, um, my, my best friend, one of my best friends in high school, did start breakdancing, was learning. It was senior year. I would have cert. I was highly interested. Would have certainly been doing that with him if I hadn't torn my ACL that year oh, and been recovering. Now, thinking about it now from my my new my therapist's point of view, I probably could have still done that You'd Probably have been after surgery after you know several weeks of recovery. I certainly could have gotten into break dancing. I think I was really afraid of doing anything that entire year. Well, that's typical. Um, okay. but man, I'm thinking, boy, gee, I. Yeah, for, for all of these years until just this moment, I've been thinking, well, I would have learned how to break dance back then, but I just couldn't. You know, can can you
1: break
0: dance idea. to metal, to heavy metal?
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you could, yeah. yeah. You can? You can. Yeah. I'm sure
0: there's people the out
1: there that dance break breathing. dance to like, classical music. I'm
0: going to YouTube this. I want to see if people are breakdancing to classical. Oh, I'm sure they are. And to heavy metal. I have been watching some serious vinyl, violinists play mm-hmm. ACD music, ACDC, and uh, some rap music. My it's incredible. But I'm just trying to imagine you, you know, uh, in a mosh pit break dancing, and then jumping into the crowd with your hair down. I can, yeah, I'm sure that somebody
2: has broke it down, broke dance, break danced, break, break dance, danced, yeah. whatever you call it, in the middle of a mosh pit. It's not That's as right. common as you know. Moshing or slam dancing, as we see, which is is that what the, is that what the, the youngsters are calling it these days? That is probably not what the youngsters are calling it. I don't know if the youngsters are even into heavy metal and mosh pits or you know that kind of a scene. But that that's what they would. That's what it is called. At, okay. that, or at some of the hardcore shows or the heavy metal shows, um, where you see the guys just
0: flailing their fists around and throwing it down. That just sounds... Almost literally. It sounds like a bunch of assholes who've been drinking and just want to fight in a crowd.
1: Sounds aggressive. It It sounds. It does sound very aggressive. I think
0: (laughs) I'd rather hang out with the chicks that are standing on point. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Way hotter. Way hotter. (laughs) And the ratio is certainly in your favor. (laughs) I'm just
1: saying. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's an
2: interesting uh, group of people. It's an interesting culture, I'll say, um, because a lot of it, the, the guys don't want to fight. There's a lot of, you get knocked down, everybody picks you back up in Aww. there. uh um, awesome. yeah.
1: Community. Yeah, yeah and
2: <laughs> you do have the person, usually one or maybe two, out there that do get shoved, they do get hit, they might walk into a fist or something, like walk Oh, they don't fist. get hit, they
1: right. just, they walked into it. They
0: bounced right into it, they yeah. the headbanged themselves and into it. And them. they do get upset. <laughs> oh, the knee, yeah. But. You know, well, let me ask you this, what's the point of doing armpits, asshole, crotch, and teeth, if you're gonna go out mosh pitting, and just get bloody and sweaty anyway? Wouldn't you want to grab, you know, be hygienic, if we're saying that's hygienic, when you <laughs> hang out with a bunch of baller- uh, you know, ballerinas?
2: Um, I, I don't, I don't understand the question. What do you mean the point? It, I don't think I I'm just picture. thinking
0: of, it like, it's way sweaty to be in a crowd, slamming each other, punching each other, kicking each other, falling on the ground. You're going to get dirtier, so why even clean yourself up? Well, I, I... would much rather be hygienic with armpits, asshole, crossing teeth if I'm hanging out with some ballerinas.
1: I don't know if the ballerinas yeah. would want to hang out with you.
0: Well, they wouldn't have known until the very last <laughs> And At that point, like, you know, what's their options, you know... But, you know so, well, okay, that's cool. So, um, certainly you can start breakdancing at any moment in your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, even in, as a middle-aged man.
1: Well, there. I mean, I even, so, sorry, kind of a tangent, kind of a, you know, I follow a lot of people, like, um... Dance rehab stuff on Instagram, mm. and I'll go through. And I mean, you get people on their walkers, and they're doing yeah. dance. I mean, they, there's never it's never too late to. But that's to, my point. I see, and now and now we're coming full circle, that's and I 100 percent agree. I see what you're saying,
0: Nana, Nana. If you're listening to this, I expect you to be on point within eight <laughs> to 12 weeks from now. <laughs> <laughs> and if she can stay on point on one foot, imagine her gait speed. Oh imagine my Imagine her stability. Imagine her ability to walk and in, in, over a puddle or to you know no longer plop on the couch, and maybe she won't fart as much when we're watching out. <laughs> you know? I,
1: I, I, is I'm there a correlation of single-edged to farting? I'm
0: just saying, you know, there's a reason why grandma wears a diaper. <laughs> and if she was a little bit more physically active, I don't think she'd have to.
2: So I was thinking about this as you were talking about it. The the notion, notion. that, um, no, the notion that just being active, enjoying you're, you're having a lifestyle of either tennis player, kayaker, or activity, bike rider. Mosh pitter. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is certainly great, and certainly uh, uh, the lifestyle that one should have to, to do some sort of physical activity that they enjoy. However, um, I, I don't know that I'm convinced that you can thrive solely off of that activity. Um, take, for instance, the bike rider, somebody that's riding tens... Tens of hundreds of miles a day or a week, I'll say hundreds of miles a week that they could be apt to put in um, to be void of any other type of exercise, any other type of strengthening to promote, you know, muscular well being or bodily balance.
0: I'm having a hard time grasping that. You're going into our next concept. But again, the the point is they're doing a physical, they're they're participating in a physical activity that their body will adapt and evolve to to become more metabolically efficient. Mm-hmm. And, and to help them within that lifestyle. Yes, you should have a variety of activities. Mm-hmm. You don't live and sleep on a bike. However, we are going to talk about the implications of exercise and immune support as well as other arrays of the uh, aspects of the body. So I think that you're on uh, you're right, um, and that's where we're going, to, we're going to be going into that down the road. But if you're physically active as a biker, you may have better cardiovascular health, yeah. better pulmonary health. Uh, You may have some problems with uh, bone hardness or you may suffer from osteoporosis, osteopenia because obviously you're not getting the impact and the loading. You may have some neck pain from the position of the Mm -hmm. bike. You may have some um, quad dominance and some knee issues. However, that you can address via other ways and I think there's more naturalistic activities that um, allow the body to function optimally compared to others. However, I think if a person enjoys something, they're, they're more apt to be physically active, and they find that physical motivation, do it. And I do think that they'll tend to have a better life. Yeah. But the biker's still going to walk, still going to carry their bike, you know, they're going to do other things. And if they really love biking, they're probably going to do some resistance training some jogging yeah that's what my my dad is a
1: huge biker and he started I mean he just wanted to be more efficient so you know work, he started working more on his hamstrings so in order to have efficient you know cycling you have to supplement to an extent with right. other things to be at your best if that's something that you want if, I mean then you the people that bike ride just for right. leisure and you know go on a trail a couple miles here and there and I mean, that I think you need supplement even more with something else. But, again, like you said, it's better than just sitting there and doing nothing. It's a start.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's Runners are better. Runner yeah. supplement. Yeah. Break dancers and mosh pitters, they box. They kickbox. Yeah, that's you know cool stuff. Yeah, I, well, I agree. I, I think, you know, we, we're going to talk about the difference and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just about getting out there. And I always tell mm-hmm. people, whenever I do an education, it's about... Make be a kid again, be a child. Don't do it because you feel like you have to do it because you're having fun, you know. And if that means you get a bunch of 80 year olds on a playground and they're playing hide and seek and tag, sounds
1: like a good time to me. It's a good time.
0: My question is. At that age, do they have to cover their eyes to count? They <laughs> probably <laughs> can't see anyways. I mean... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just... Well, technology, these days, you know, maybe... I don't know. But I'm just wondering, you know? That's and funny. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I think we can wrap this up uh, and just uh, call it a day. Do you have anything else to say for anything? Oh, gosh. I feel like I've exhausted myself. i probably said more than I need to say, but... Um. No, you're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you <know, laughs> okay, this was fun. You're going to have a bright future. You oh, really are. Nice. Um, I enjoy... I really enjoy the uh, the opportunity that we've got to work with you and get to know you a lot. Oh, thank a you. Bit. So, um, whomever that special young man is out there that has you, I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> better seal the deal.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's right. I've been saying it. To but-
0: the left. To the left. To the left. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> that being said, I think we're all done. So, Woo-hoo. cue drums. And now we'd like to take time for our
2: uh, thank yous and our special donations.
0: Thank you, you beautiful individual of a man. Thank you. I would have forgotten that. So, again, we want to remind everybody that we're not looking to monetize this podcast, but if it's uh, possible to uh, to earn a little bit of money to help us keep this operation going, if you enjoy the education... You can donate um, to uh, oh god, what is that? Um, oh, I forget. Uh, I'll remind you of another podcast. But you can certainly donate to our podcast. Uh, subscribe us, like us. Uh, we have more uh, opportunity to get advertisers. But twenty five percent of the of any profits that we have um, will go directly to cystic fibrosis, uh, muscular dystrophy association, and for spinal muscular atrophy association. We are very passionate physical therapists and providers, so we we certainly certainly want to help out those charities as best we can, especially with the newer technologies out there that could possibly save children from ever experiencing these conditions and also help those that are struggling with these conditions at this present time. The other thing that I like to do, and I'm so glad that you reminded me of that, Jeff. I totally forgot. Um, I, to send, I want to send my special thanks to some people that have inspired me and Joe to, uh, to go ahead and do this. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have done it. We were talking about it for two years. Uh, I, mean, I finally got, got it going. Uh, so I want to send a thank you to Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, Sean Carroll, and Adam Meekins. Uh, Adam Meekins, you beautiful British bastard. Um, love the shit out of all of you guys. You guys really inspired us to get this going. You're very thought-provoking. Your intellects, although uh, from uh, different perspectives, if it wasn't for your influence, I don't know if we would have would have had the courage to do this. So thank you very much for your influence on us and uh, um, getting us uh, going. Appreciate it. What about you? Oh, I was just letting you speak for- For both of us. For both of us. All right, let's shut it down. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it.